everyone. Thank you so much for uh, listening to the podcast. We are listening to right now is an intro to this podcast recorded several weeks after it was originally recorded. This is the intro to the intro. That's right. It, because I have some important things to tell you. The first is that after we recorded um, this episode of Talking About Mansfield Park, I actually went into the original file and cut in some clips of the book so that you don't have to listen to me read the book. You can listen to, actually, a professional read the book. And she I sounds... did enjoy listening to Kristen read the book. Oh, that's though. kind. That's kind. But really, I think I want the text to sing and pop and be as good as it is to read. Um, and uh, so that the recording that I'm cutting in is, a, is by Karen Savage. It is in the public domain. It is available on LibriVox. It is a free download. And the woman who reads it, again, is named Karen Savage, and she's great. And the second thing I need to make perfectly clear is that several times in the podcast you are about to hear, uh, Maggie calls the book, uh, the pace of the book, a little slow, slow, and glacial, respectively. And You know what? I stand by it. (laughs) No, I went, and I keep telling her that it's the audiobook she read. And in the podcast you're about to hear, I say, no, Maggie, it's it's the um, audiobook you read. And I went and I listened to the audiobook that she, not, not that she read, that she listened to. And it is the most boring audiobook recording <sighs> I have ever heard. She listened to a real stinker, so don't believe her. I think she was just bored because it was a terrible, no, terrible reader. Kristen, I have read the book. Well, that was a long time ago. You said so yourself. It was not that long ago. Oh my God. We'll let the listener and the reader make up their own mind. The pace of this book is perfectly fine. Okay. <laughs> and on that note, you enjoy the podcast. Right. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode three of the podcast, First Impressions, Why All the Austin Haters Are Wrong. You may have noticed we went through a little name change, uh, but the podcast mission is still the same, to give vent to our feelings about the dumb jerks who make fun of our liking Jane Austen, and to finally have a way to describe and explain the depth and brilliance of her novels. My name is Kristen. I've been a fan of Jane Austen from my early teens. Um, I've now gone pretty far down the rabbit hole over the course of my adult life. And I am joined today by my dear friend, Maggie. Hi, everyone. Gentle listeners, (laughs) thank you for coming back. And Kristen's mom, special shout out. (laughs) We're here today for our third episode to discuss Jane Austen's third published novel, Mansfield Park. It was published in July 1814 and is now celebrated its 201st birthday. So happy birthday, Mansfield Park. And also, related news, happy recent first birthday to Kristen. Oh, what? Thank you. She doesn't look a day over 50. <laughs> Uh, So for those who may not be familiar with Mansfield Park and the plot, because I would say that it's probably not one of Jane Austen's more popular novels, although as we will hopefully prove, it is still worthy of consideration and discussion. Uh, But I'm going to give you a little plot synopsis. And this is actually coming from the website janeaustin.co.uk, which I do encourage you to check out. It has some very interesting information. Uh, So I'm just going to read their Mansfield Park plot synopsis. It's a little long, but bear with me. Mansfield Park is interesting in that lots of things happen, and then not a lot happens, and then lots of things happen again. So there is quite a bit denser plot-wise than you might think it is when you're going through it. So, are you seated comfortably? (laughs) Let's begin. Yes, I am. 
The main character, Fanny Price, is a young girl from a poor family, raised by her rich uncle and aunt, Sir Thomas and Lady Bertram, at Mansfield Park. She grows up with her four cousins, Tom, Edmund, Mariah, is it Mariah or Maria? Mariah. Mariah, and Julia, but is always treated as inferior. Only Edmund shows her real kindness. He is also the most virtuous of the siblings. Mariah and Julia are vain and spoiled, while Tom is an irresponsible gambler. Over time, Fanny's gratitude for Edmund's kindness secretly grows into romantic love. When the children have grown up, the stern patriarch, Sir Thomas, leaves for two years so he can deal with problems on his plantation in Antigua. Henry Crawford and his sister Mary Crawford arrive in the village, which begins a series of romantic entanglements. Mary and Edmund begin to form an attachment, though Edmund often worries that, although her manners are fashionable, they hide a lack of firm principle. However, Mary Crawford is engaging and charming and goes out of her way to befriend Fanny. Fanny fears that Mary has enchanted Edmund and love has blinded him to her flaws. Henry Crawford plays with the affections of Mariah and Julia, despite Mariah being already engaged to the dull but very rich Mr. Rushworth. Because Fanny is so little observed in the family circle, her presence is often overlooked, and Fanny sees Mariah and Henry in compromising situations several times. Encouraged by Tom and his friend Mr. Yates, the young people decide to put on Elizabeth Inkbald's play Lover's Vows. Edmund and Fanny oppose the plan, believing Sir Thomas will disapprove, but Edmund is eventually drawn into it, offering to play the part of Anne Halt, who is the lover of the character played by Mary Crawford. In particular, the play provides a pretext for Henry and Mariah to flirt in public. Sir Thomas arrives unexpectedly in the middle of a rehearsal, which ends the plan. Henry leaves and Mariah is crushed. She marries Mr. Rushworth and they leave for their honeymoon, taking Julia with them. That's a little awkward. <laughs> Fanny's improved looks and pleasant temper endear her to Sir Thomas, who pays more attention to her care. Henry Crawford returns to Mansfield Park and decides to amuse himself by making Fanny fall in love with him. However, her genuine gentleness and kindness cause him to fall in love with her instead. When he proposes marriage, Fanny's knowledge of his improper flirtations with her cousins, as well as her love for Edmund, cause her to reject him. The Bertrams are dismayed, since it is an extremely advantageous match for a poor girl like Fanny. Sir Thomas rebukes her for ingratitude. Thereafter, she returns to her lower middle class family, where she wishes to return to Mansfield Park. Sir Thomas is hopeful that she will realize the usefulness of a rich husband. Henry Crawford goes to visit her there to demonstrate that he has changed and is worthy of her affection. Fanny's attitude begins to soften, but she still maintains that she will not marry him. Shortly after Henry leaves from visiting Portsmouth, where Fanny is with her family, Fanny learns of a scandal involving Henry Crawford and Mariah. The two have met again in London and begun an affair that, when discovered, ends in scandalous elopement and divorce. To make matters worse, the dissolute Tom has taken ill and Julia has eloped with Mr. Yates. Fanny returns to Manfield's Park to comfort her aunt and uncle and to help take care of Tom. Although Edmund knows that marriage to Mary Crawford is now impossible because of the scandal between their relations, he goes to see her one last time. During the interview, it becomes clear that Mary doesn't condemn Henry and Mariah's bad behavior, only that they got caught. Her main concern is covering it up, and she angrily implies that if Fanny, excuse me, if Fanny had accepted Henry, he would have been too busy and happy to flirt with other women. This reveals Mary Crawford's true nature to Edmund, who realizes he has idolized her as someone she is not. He tells her and returns to Mansfield and his living at Thornton Lacey, which I believe is the uh, clergy house that is connected to Mansfield Park's estate. 
At exactly the time it should be so, and not a week sooner, Edmund realizes how important Fanny is to him, declares his love for her, and they are married. Tom recovers from his illness, a steadier and better man for it, and Julia's elopement turns out to be not such a desperate business after all. Austin points out that if only Henry Crawford had persisted in being steadfast to Fanny and not succumbed to the affair with Mariah, Fanny eventually would have accepted his marriage proposal, especially if Edmund had married Mary. So in the end, it all works out, and Fanny, who is our heroine of our story, ends up with the man she loves. But there's a lot going on, I think, in the background of Mansfield Park, more that you can get from just the synopsis. So I'm going to turn it now back to Kristen, who's going to start us down this literary path. Thank you very much. Well done, Maggie. Well, you're absolutely right. There's there's so much going on, and the, the key to understanding uh, Mansfield Park is really in our effort to understand Fanny Price, the main character, um, because Fanny Price is not a character that it's easy to relate to for a modern audience. I don't think it's unfair to say that Fanny Price is probably, I don't want to say hated, but probably the least popular of all of Jane Austen's heroines in her books. You can even say hated. I mean, there are some people who feel so strongly about her. And um, while I personally have a great deal of affection for Fanny, I question whether we as readers are really supposed to like her. Um, On the face of this story, it is very much a morality tale. Fanny is the good girl. She's such a good girl that um, it's actually described that Edmund calls her the perfect model of a woman. She upholds all of Regency society's values. She is the perfect model of Regency society's oppressive values. She submits herself and subsumes herself in her opinions totally to Edmund and to her uncle, Sir Thomas, her rich uncle, who she's dependent upon. Kristen, do I detect another possible thesis you would like to state about Mansfield Park, perhaps in the way Jane Austen utilizes her female characters? Yes. Why, yes, you do. I have an opinion about this. Um, I haven't, um, so in preparation for this, I was going to go through and back and read a lot of dissertations and read a lot of old criticism again, and I didn't do that because I don't want to spout other people's opinions on this podcast like they're mine. So I'm going to tell you this, and this is just from my own mind, but on the superficial surface of this book, Fanny the Good Girl is the only one who gets her man. We can read this book like a straight morality tale, very conservative, Austin upholding the values of the day. When we take a step back and look deeper, we take a look at the other two women who are romantically entangled in this novel, uh, majorly, Mariah Bertram and Mary Crawford. And my thesis is that Austin is taking all three of these women and showing how they're stunted and twisted in various ways by what society is imposing on them. So to sum up very briefly, Fanny, as we know, is perfect on the inside. She's a perfect mind and soul, right? However, she lives a life of fear every day. She is constantly having to berate herself, force herself into humility, to, to fulfill her idea of what duty is. For example, um, she does not really love her uncle. He is a real tyrant to her as a child, but she knows it's her duty to love him. And so when he does go to Antigua, she, it's explained in the book, she cries because she could not cry. The Miss Bertrams were much to be pitied on the occasion, not for their sorrow, 
but for their want of it. Their father was no object of love to them. He had never seemed the friend of their pleasures, and his absence was, unhappily, most welcome. They were relieved by it from all restraint, and without aiming at one gratification that would probably have been forbidden by Sir Thomas, they felt themselves immediately at their own disposal, and to have every indulgence within their reach. Fanny's relief, and her consciousness of it, were quite equal to her cousin's, but a more tender nature suggested that her feelings were ungrateful, and she really grieved because she could not grieve. She's failed herself because she doesn't love her uncle enough. Putting that kind of pressure on yourself to wholeheartedly love somebody when you can't, we don't have a lot of respect for that kind of behavior today. We're, we, we, we find that very spineless. I think that's the big problem that modern readers have with Fanny, is that I believe I have personally referred to her as a milksop, mm -hmm. as a wash dirty dishcloth, as a wet noodle. Uh, she just seems kind of lame. Now here's the kicker, all right? She is a perfect woman, and Edmund has made her so. But being perfect is boring. Well, that's what Edmund is telling her. This is what I want out of a woman. And he doesn't love her. He's built her from the ground up. It's a Pygmalion story, mm -hmm. right? And and he's carved a woman out of ivory, and he's supposed to fall in love with her, you know? But instead, what he wants is a woman who is actually full of life and actually has a spine, and a woman people like. And people love Elizabeth Bennet, and Mary Crawford is so similar to Elizabeth Bennet in her wit, in her style, and vivacity, and ability to socialize, and everybody has a great time around her. And we'll talk more about this later. We're going to talk about each of the female characters in depth. Yes, and I, I posit that if Fanny is Edmund's and society's perfect model, Mary Crawford might be Austen's ideal woman. But she doesn't get her man. And I think um, what we learn is that society has stunted her so that she, you know, <clears throat> and we'll talk about more of that later, but the third, the third part of this triumvirate is Mariah Bertram, which is Fanny's cousin. Fanny's cousin who... Sister um, to Edmund. Sister to Edmund, who is the one who's really toyed with... She's engaged uh, to Mr. Rushworth, who's a real duller, but the reason she got engaged to him is because... He's rich, and that's what society has told her. That's her responsibility. Um, I have I have quotes for all this too. But Mariah is perfect on the outside. It's, it's pretty explicit in the book. She has grown up to attain every achievement that a society man would want to see in a woman. And she's like, here I am. I'm perfect. You know, I've got the perfect life. I'm engaged to the perfect, dumb, rich guy. And then she finds, she feels that she has real feelings for an actually entertaining man. She's never, she lives all her life in the country, so she's not part of the London set. So she, here she's used very naive, very isolated. She goes out in the world and says, well, I'm perfect. Everybody wants to be with me. And she's ruined because she's not perfect. She's a dime a dozen. And that's exactly how Henry Crawford treats her, as a commodity. So all these women are fulfilling expectations. Well, at least Mariah and Fanny are fulfilling what they see as expectations placed on them, and they're waiting for their reward. So Mansfield Park is actually pretty harsh on all of its female characters, even while Fanny is held up as the paragon of the Regency woman. She spends most of the novel completely miserable. Oh, God, completely miserable. And there, you know, even though we don't, um, we have a hard time with her lack of backbone, I think... It is very touching and moving when you get into the story and start reading some descriptions of her, her thoughts, her feelings. And for me, there are just some clips that just 
devastate me every time when I read about Fanny's life and her emotions. And I will say that I have, since rereading it for this, to prepare for the podcast, I have actually changed my view of Fanny. Um, I think when I first read the book, it was probably about 10 years ago. Um, I guess a lot can change. You know, we put ourselves into what we read. And so our views of characters is certainly subject to change depending on our own life experiences. I think if anyone goes back and reads books that they read when they were younger, they can witness that. So for me, I have actually changed my mind a lot, mostly because, which again, we'll talk about more in depth, if not this episode, our next episode, um, with Fanny's response to when Henry Crawford proposes to her and her uncle tries to push her into marrying him, uh, which she refuses to do. And it rips her up inside. But to say that Fanny has no backbone, I think you cannot read that part of the book and claim that because she basically says, I'm not going to do it. That's gonna hurt. You can't make me do it. They send her back to Portsmouth to live with her poor family, her drunk of a father, and she still won't do it. Um, and that's basically, it's full on a punishment. I mean, they say it's, oh, you can go see your brother who's joining the Navy, and we'll be sh- or he's in the Navy, he just got his lieutenant commission. He'll be shipping out, and you should go back to Portsmouth and see him. But then it also says Sir Thomas couldn't claim that part of the reason he was sending her back was so she would now see remember what it's like to be poor. It was so deliberate. Um, so before we kind of get into more, I think, of an in-depth look at some of the characters, I just want to briefly talk about, it wasn't really said in the synopsis, but let's kind of explain how Fanny ended up at Mansfield Park. I think that might be helpful. Because if you haven't read the book, you were probably thinking, well, how did this girl from a super poor family end up at this rich estate? So we need to introduce a couple more characters that we didn't talk about. And that is Fanny's mother and her two aunts. Fanny's mother is one of three sisters. One of the sisters becomes Lady Bertram. She marries Sir Thomas, and she was beautiful and not particularly smart or anything. But, oh, we have a, we have a reading by Kristen. I'm sorry I, uh, to interrupt you, but I just think it's a great um, time to talk about the first line of this novel. Because Pride and Prejudice is such a famous and witty and zippy first line that when, as a teen, when I was like, well, I love Pride and Prejudice, why not give this a try? And I read this first, first line, and I was like, Oh, what a clunker. But it's it's actually telling us a lot about what the story will be about and, and the world we're going into. About thirty years ago, Miss Maria Ward of Huntingdon, with only seven thousand pounds, had the good luck to captivate Sir Thomas Bertram of Mansfield Park, in the county of Northampton, and to be thereby raised to the rank of a baronet's lady, with all the comforts and consequences of an handsome house and large income. All Huntingdon exclaimed on the greatness of the match, and her uncle the lawyer himself allowed her to be at least three thousand pounds short of any equitable claim to it. Oh, boring. Oh, I'm totally riveted. I'm totally riveted. Why are we talking about money and three thousand pounds? And and now this is a world in which, again, she's reminding us, marriage is money. Money equals marriage. You get married because of a mercenary goal. And that's the problem that's twisting all of these people. And that's what, what Austin's trying to hold up and saying, like, look, whatever, you know, well, this has got to change. This is a real problem in our lives. And women are, are, are subject, subjugated to this. I do think it's funny, though, I want to point out that Mariah Ward, who then becomes Lady Bertram, totally pulled the Lorelei and named her daughter after herself, which I didn't no, no, realize. No, that's really common um, in Austin's time. It was... It was, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that it was common. No, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Um, 
that's it's uh, Francis is the younger sister's name, and she names her oldest daughter Fanny. It's the same name, and um, everybody did. Your first son was your dad. Her, his dad's name. Your first daughter was a mom's name, which oh. is totally not done. Now. No, that is not done now at all. Um, Except I might bring that back. You notice that Miss Mrs. Morris. Um, well, that, we haven't talked about Mrs. Morris. No, but we we, we should talk about. Yeah, I know you were going to bring her up. Mrs. Morris is such a um, quintessentially. She's not an evil character, but um, she does a lot of evil. And you know, in Harry Potter. The cat is named Mrs. Norris. Mm-hmm. J.K. is referencing yeah. this book because she's such an evil character. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, what I think is interesting is that she's the eldest Miss Ward, so they never give her a first name, and she never has a daughter. So we never find out what her first name is. And uh, I kind of wonder if Austin hated this character so much that <laughs> so I can't give her any name. But I totally derailed what you were going to say. There's a, uh, there's a line halfway down on the first page. But there certainly are not so many men of large fortune in the world, as there are pretty women to deserve them. And that's the crux. There's a lot of pretty women out in the world looking for a home, and they can't find safe harbor. Much like the DC dating scene. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure, you would know. I've been married since I was 24, so. Oh my god. 23, 23. Kristen, really? Yeah, nine years in October. <laughs> you were there! I know, I was there, but I don't remember much of it. I was totally drunk! <laughs> Did you remember you were 23 the next morning? Oh, you were always like... Oh, um, yes, Kristen. Thank you for pointing out to the entire <laughs> listening audience that I am older than you and I'm not married, and you've been married for nine years. Have some more wine! Mm-hmm. <sighs> Cheers. But yeah. <laughs> So, boyfriend just clean glasses with me. Thank you. Um, so, let me get back to what I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted by Kristen wanting Sorry. to actually refer to the text. Sorry. Uh, so, there are three Ward, now we know Ward sisters, and Mariah Ward marries Sir Thomas Bertram and becomes Lady Bertram. Her sister marries the clergyman who is running the church on Mansfield Park Estate and becomes Mrs. Norris and is now basically living also at Mansfield Park. She's always there. So Lady Bertram is there. Her sister is Mrs. Norris, and she's there. The third sister marries, I guess, just somebody of no wealth. Um, I can't remember what his job is. A lieutenant of the Marines. He's a lieutenant of the Marines, and he's basically a drunk and treats them all like shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ends up having like 20 children, or something <laughs> ridiculous, and of whom Fanny is one of them. And she loses touch with her other sisters. She breaks ties with them. Because she marries someone. Yeah. And, um, that nobody likes. And she, they, they, they sort of cast her off. She writes them a mean letter and says, you bunch, you bunch of snobs. But then when she has like nine kids, she writes to them and she's like, look, I got no yeah, money. She's like, oh God, how am I going to pay for all yeah, If it doesn't pay to have principal in her world. She's married for love, and she's totally up a creek for it. So she basically says, uh, you know, and I love when Jane Austen, we see this a lot also with Mary Crawford's letters, where when she includes the letters, and you can see how people kind of dance around the issue, what they really want. So basically the third, what is her name? Fanny's mother's name. Frances. Frances. Duh, you said that. That's okay. Sorry. Uh, So Frances writes a letter to her sister, Lady Bertram, which is, oh, I would like to, you know, we should reconnect. Is this along? I miss the lovingness of my sister. I'm completely paraphrasing. But Nick's very clear that, could you take some of my kids? (laughs) Maybe some of the boys. Because they'd be really helpful to for you. To be fair to her, I think she's asking for career advice. Uh, she's asking for career advice for her sons. But she wants the to send them out. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. Yes, it's very clear. I need your financial support. Right. And it's Mrs. Norris, the officious busybody who loves to dictate to others, who loves to dictate liberality to others, yet she is the most parsimonious, frugal, evil, penny it is woman. It is hysterical and ridiculous how cheap this woman is. <laughs> and she, without any shame at all, mooches off Sir Thomas and Lady Bertram. No shame at all. So she's the one who's like, oh, yes, we should absolutely bring someone here. And one of the, and let's bring a daughter. I think the daughter would be better. And, but then we'll, of course, have, will not help at all. Because daughters are financial dead weight. Yeah. I mean, um, but, I mean, sorry to, no, you know, you were talking about Mrs. Norris and you're right that she's a really, it's really funny the way Austin describes her, her mooching, um, and all these little asides. But daughters, this is another thing, like, like daughters are just financial deadweight. The only way you can make money off of a daughter is marrying her. And that's totally a long right. way away. Right. And, it's, and like we said in the beginning, it's, you're not get your good odds. Right. Because it's not likely that the daughter of a drunk lieutenant with nine other children is going to marry a rich person. It's just, and, you know, it's just not going to happen. You have to... Uh, hope for a very, very romantic man who falls in love. You have to be really beautiful, in other words. Like, you have to be in a novel. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so th these are the circuits. So Lady Bertram and Mrs. Norris, they basically convince Sir Thomas to let one of the nieces come and live with them and into a park. And these are the circumstances in which Fanny arrives. I think she's 12. Is she younger than that? Uh, ten. ten. She's young. She's very young. So she basically arrives, and they're all like, oh. Oh, right. You were coming. <laughs> um, we'll just put you over here. Yes. This is everybody. And make yourself easy. And Mrs. Norris is talking to her all the way from Northampton about how she should be so happy and it's so lucky, but this is a 10-year-old girl that just ripped from her home, and so... She cries she for, cries. like, two months. And then she is guilty because she's been told it's a wicked thing to be unhappy. So you can see the psychological torture that's happening, even when she's a child. She's saying, every emotion you have is wrong. And she's, um... The only person who's kind to her is her cousin Edmund. Her Mariah and Julia, her other cousins, basically call her stupid because she doesn't speak French. Yeah. And she doesn't know, I don't know, like needlepoint. Like, she, you know, she grew up in a poor household. She doesn't have tutors and she doesn't know anything about British history. She doesn't know the kings and queens and yeah. she doesn't know any of this stuff. And so to her, there she's just stupid and ugly. There's this hilarious passage where they're like, we asked her how she would get to Ireland and she said she would cross to the Isle of Wight. She thinks of nothing but the Isle of Wight, and she calls it the island, as though there were no other island in the world. Like, it's really funny how they go off on how stupid she is. And Which is kind of funny, because it's like the pot calling the kettle black, right? I mean, sure, that they have read all these books and speak French and probably Greek, or I don't know. They knit, they needlepoint pillows and play the piano and do all manners of things. I don't even. Uh, which was my lame attempt at a Bingley quote. Cover screens with yes. no not what. This is why Kristen always wins the Pride and Prejudice quote. Oh, sorry. Uh, but they are, they have no life experience. They wouldn't know how to get to Ireland if they actually needed no, to go. They're, they're re reinforced. Um, by Mrs. Norris, who loves them, loves them injudiciously and without judgment, and tells them over and over again how wonderful they are and how great and how smart, and they never learn how to be humble at all. 
and it's partly because Mrs. Norris keeps telling them over and over again, their mom is totally checked out. So it's really Mrs. Nor Norris is the main female figure in their lives. And then their father is so cruel and tyrannical. It's mentioned in the book that he thinks this is the way to raise children, is to be really hard on them. But what he actually does is represses the flaw Spare the rod and spoil the child. Yeah, so, so they never take any useful lesson from him. They're just being told all the time by their aunt how wonderful they are. And they grow up without that internal uh, compass that Fanny gets because mm -hmm. she's so hard on herself in every respect. Because Edmund tells her what to think. Edmund tells Fanny. Edmund is the superintendent of Fanny's growth. Um, mentally and spiritually, and and um, I have I have a quote here about um, about Edmund, and people think this is so creepy, and it is. We, I, and I don't know if Austin felt it was creepy or not, but when we read it, we realize how how gross this is. Um, Miss Lee is her governess, uh, and the governess of the girl. So the book says. Miss Lee taught her French, and heard her read the daily portion of history, but he recommended the books which charmed her leisure hours. He encouraged her taste, and corrected her judgment. He made reading useful by talking to her of what she read, and heightened its attraction by judicious praise. In return for such services, she loved him better than anybody in the world except William. Her heart was divided between the two. So, what he—, he is correcting her judgment. He's encouraging her taste. He's making her from the ground up. I really like what you said earlier about how it's a Pygmalion tale, and I never really thought about that, but it is completely true. It's like she has no personality, which is, I mean, it's not true that she had no personality when she arrived to them. She was 10 years old, which uh, my boyfriend, Bay, who Googled it while we were sitting here, has confirmed she was 10. <laughs> and she was a person. Uh, but when she gets to Mansfield Park, they had no interest in who she was before she arrived, and she was so homesick and lonely that she they treat her as if she arrives as a blank slate and Edmund rewrites her entire personality. I don't think we actually know what Fanny was like before she arrived. We know she was very close with her older brother William. She but other a, than that, yeah. we don't know a lot about she her. Was, it says something about her being a favorite with her sisters because she was useful as instructress, playmate, playmate and nurse. She was important among them. She had some feeling of value for herself, we can assume. Um, but we don't know any more than that. And really, she was a child, you know, she was sort of half a yeah. anyway. I think part of that might also have to do with how children were viewed in a Regency era. Um, I mean, perhaps they weren't even viewed as being worthy of attention until a certain age. It sounded like kind of a zoo. Kind of sounded kind of, you know, with nine kids, they sort of all take care of each That's other. That's true. It's just like a screaming mass. <laughs> this is like my mother, where uh, my mother obviously has me and my brother. She has children. She has grandchildren. She loves them all. But she's not a big baby fan. Mm -hmm. She doesn't think the kids are really interesting until they can talk to you and have a conversation. Well, Which is fair. You know, babies just kind of don't really do anything. Side point. Austin was taken from her home until she was like six years That's old. That's true. In a, oh, you, 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 That's right, because we were on that tour. Yeah, so... She came back into her actual home when she had reached, quote, the age of reason, where you could have a conversation with her. Which is kind of hilarious if you think about it now, because how many six-year-olds do you know who are anything close to reasonable? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, so here's what's going on with Mariah Bertram and her sister Julia. The Miss Bertrams, um, this is after Sir Thomas leaves to go to Antigua, and they've sort of grown up. The Miss Bertrams were now fully established among the bells of the neighbourhood, 
and as they joined to beauty and brilliant acquirements a manner naturally easy and carefully formed to general civility and obligingness, they possessed its favour as well as its admiration. Their vanity was in such good order that they seemed to be quite free from it, and gave themselves no airs while the praisers attending such behaviour, secured and brought round by their aunt, served to strengthen them in believing they had no faults. Their vanity was in such good order. I just love that. I love that because that's so true. It's like you, you don't have to pretend to be awesome when you just know you're the, you know, the star. I mean, this is how, this is how I kind of feel. <laughs> um, I mean, they have, they have no ability for self-reflection, and they believe themselves born for everything special and everything wonderful, and that's what gets mine into trouble, is her boundless vanity and her desire to feel special. So is this one of those things where you can really, I mean, can you really blame the victim here? that they were brought up in this way. And this is why it seems so unfair what happens to Maria. As the reader, we want to, you know, on the surface, we're like, we can blame her. Oh, she was so vain. You're absolutely right. She is a victim, too. She's a victim of her upbringing, and she's a victim of Henry Crawford, also. Right. Let's not, let's not say that, I mean, like saying blame the victim. I mean, Mariah's certainly not. It takes two to tango. Absolutely. And I, it's done off-screen, off-page, if you will, but I, there's no doubt in my mind that if she wasn't like, oh, hey, Henry, I haven't seen you in so long, let's run away together. <laughs> I mean, come on. He played a very active role in wanting to seduce her a second time. Right. And that tipped her over. And Austin explicitly says in the novel, I don't know if you have that part um, highlighted to read, but she specifically says that he saw it as a challenge. When he arrived after visiting her, having not seen her for so long, she was married. She hadn't thought of him in so long. His vanity and selfishness and ego needed to prove that he could still seduce her it's a after people. all this time. Exactly. It, it's a, it's a men. Men. These people just need to get jobs. Men. Can we please? Just, okay. Bay <laughs> <laughs> is now giving us oh, a I'm look sorry. like no, whatever. I'm, just, I'm, I'm being cutesy and cheeky, as you know. Uh, they just really they just need jobs because all they do is play whist and talk about how they're going to improve each other's landscapes. And they're bored. The world is their playground, yeah. and they're bored. And no wonder they get into these dalliances. I mean, they need something to fill their leisure hours. Yeah, how about you go uh, plow a field? <laughs> how about that? Uh, so do you want to maybe turn to talking about Mary Crawford? I do. There's one more thing. Um, there's just one more thing I realized I wanted to just quickly read about um, Mariah Bertram. And that is... That she gets, uh, she does get engaged, um, as you know, to her dumb, rich husband. Oh, Mr. Rushworth, bless. And it's not like he swept her off her feet. So Mrs. Norris was instrumental in this match. She did. Or she claims that she was instrumental. Mr. Rushworth, who's a rich guy, um, was was from the first struck with the beauty of Miss Bertram, and being inclined to marry, soon fancied himself in love. He was a heavy young man. Hey, fat shaming Austin, like yeah, knock it off. Really, she, she, of course, is dull and fat, right? Right. She's a bad fat shamer. Anyway, he was a heavy young man with not more than common sense. But as there was nothing disagreeable in his figure or address, the young lady was well pleased with her conquest. Being now in her twenty-first year, Mariah Bertram was beginning to think matrimony a duty, and as marriage with Mister Rushworth would give her the enjoyment of a larger income than her father's as well as ensured her the house in town in London, which was now a prime object, it became by the same rule of moral obligation, her evident duty to marry Mr. Rushworth if she could. This is a woman consigning herself to life with a total dullard. 
because she's been told it's her duty, her moral obligation to marry wealth. And also, it's appealing that she'll end up richer than her dad. Yes. <laughs> she loves getting one over on her dad. Yeah, who is apparently, to be fair, before he comes back from uh, the plantation, he is a total jerk. <laughs> yeah, he's... So he's it's kind of like, in your face, Dad! Yeah, he, I mean, he's never been a friend of their pleasures or whatever it said. And so Mary Crawford comes into the neighborhood, and like we said, she's like a Lizzie Bennet, but she has this opinion. I would have everybody marry if they can do it properly. I do not like to have people throw themselves away, but everybody should marry as soon as they can do it to advantage. She has the same worldly view of marriage. So that's the shade in her character. Right? She likes to throw some shade. And then later... I bet Mary Crawford gives him pretty epic side-eye. <laughs> she does, too. Boston-level side-eye. Yeah. Right? Yeah, well, when she comes into the neighborhood, her sister, Mrs. Grant, says, Oh, I've got a plan. Just a cutesy little sisterish thing to do. You should marry Tom Bertram, the eldest, and then you can inherit this entire estate. And she's, like, laughs about it, but she does not forget to think of it seriously. And then, uh, when she meets the family, she likes Tom best. Um, and she, it says in the book, She had felt an early presentiment that she should like the eldest the best. She knew it was her way. <laughs> it's like, of course she's only going to be interested in a man who can keep her living in the South she's accustomed to, because she's not poor. She has a good deal of money for a woman. Mm -hmm. She has like 20,000 pounds settled on her by, I don't know, some family thing. Um, so she can really add to a, a man's estate, but she doesn't really have enough money to keep her living independently in this grand style that, she's, that she wants. But, uh, and she's a, as soon as she comes into Mantille's social circle, Edmund is charmed by her, as you said. And they have this, this first dinner that we, we really hear Edmund and Mary interact. Mr. Rushworth is there. And you actually texted me at one point. You're like, God, he keeps talking about his home improvement plans. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Rushworth, oh my, I can't even, okay, he seems like a very nice person. He seems like a very nice person. I don't think there's anything really wrong with him, but, it, but it's not just him, first of all. Everyone is obsessed with the improvement of his estate, which apparently the, the views of the house from the road are just awful. You see the back of the house. It's not oh, dear. And they just talk on and on. I think one of the problems people have with Mansfield Park is when you hit this part of the book, it does slow down to a glacial pace, and people just talk on and on and on about landscaping. But I, I feel like I never felt like it slowed. I think you were listening to it on audiobook. One of the things that stresses me on an audiobook is I can't go fast if I want to go fast. You know, like you have mm -hmm. to listen to every sentence being written at the same <laughs> pace, and you can't be like, okay. You know, like, I get it. Uh, <laughs> what's going on? Not that we would ever encourage anyone to skip any word of Jane Austen's delightful prose. No, and, and um, you know, sometimes when she's trying to be funny and showing how dumb people are, they don't have the same sense of pacing as in right. Jane Austen's delightful So it goes on a little long. Yeah, wait till we get to sense and sensibility, folks. I mean, Emma. Emma is totally, uh, yeah, ring shot. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. Mr. Rushworth, perfectly nice person. Just not the smartest, and everyone just goes on and on and on and on about improving his grounds. In At Southerton? Southerton. 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 And I love this moment, um, Henry Crawford. Now, I was going to talk about Mary Crawford, but I just love this little moment. Henry Crawford is there. Mariah is already aware that she's falling in love. She, you know, she just likes Henry Crawford a lot. 
And so when Rushworth is babbling on and on and says something to her about, oh, you know, um, talking about the avenue or whatever, she it says she felt it must, was most becoming to reply, oh, I do not recollect. I really know very little of Southerton. But that's such a little moment, and, and you see this dynamic at the same time when, so, when someone is sort of liking one person and not, not so into another, maybe their current guy or gal, they'll sort of slight them and contradict them and sort of give cold answers in a way to show... Mariah's a mean girl. She's a mean girl. I mean, let's be honest. She's like Regina. Yeah, and, and she thinks that makes her becoming to like, she's playing a game. And Henry well, Crawford. so is Henry Crawford. He and he talks to his sister Mary, and they explicitly talk about how he's gonna get these girls around. Oh yeah, and he's like, oh, I'm just gonna see about these Bertram girls. Like, oh, they're they're pretty cute. I think I'll see which one I can get to fall in love with. Me. It's um, yeah. He he doesn't have a. If he's from the London set, marriage is for money. Flirtation and games are for entertainment. I will point out though that I don't. Okay, I love, first of all, I love talking about Mary Crawford. I think she's fascinating. I think it's easy to call her and Henry the villains oh, yes. of this story, but I don't think but that's they're true. Not, yeah. They're not, they're not, not malicious to them. They don't, ex- nobody, they, no one expects this to end up with Mariah running away with Henry and busting up her marriage and it being a huge scandal. Like, that's not the point. To them, it's just a harmless flirtation. I don't think they understand. No, because they're from the London yeah, set. Yeah, they don't understand that in the country, you don't do this. Yeah, these people have never been exposed to that sense of morality. And the other other thing is, it, um, Mary's descri- they're just, Mary, in particular, is described in the book as a mind led astray and bewildered, and without any suspicion of being so, darkened, yet fancying itself light. And I think that goes exactly to your point. She fancies herself just a lighthearted yeah. person, but she actually has this, you know, mental cancer of being Ooh. fixated. I, I didn't mean to take it in a weird way. No, you know, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and she does this, this mind darkened but fancying itself light kind of comes out, at least in Edmund's judgment, in this conversation. Because Mary Crawford, the first thing she does is gets a slam in at her uncle. She's yeah, like, oh, the admiral. Uncle. The admiral. Who basically is the, um, what do you call it? He is their sponsor. Their, he's the one who kind of pays their way. Yeah, he, he takes them in when their right. actual parent died. And he's in some distant relation. Yeah. So they owe... You know, a lot to him. However, he's a vicious man. His wife dies and he brings his mistress under his roof. Which is why they leave. Which is why they leave. Why she leaves. Yeah, she can't be in the same house as his horrible Which mistress. is so interesting because that in itself is a morality decision. I can't live in this house. This is immoral. He's brought his mistress in. So she and Henry have to leave. And then look what happens down the road. Yes. And that, yeah, exactly. Sweet. Delicious irony. That's the first. So she gets a slam in on her uncle and Edmund is, is like shocked. And so is Fanny. They're both like, I can't believe they could choose to speak about him in this disrespectful way. Mm -hmm. And then it's the cherry on top because they start talking about the Navy and Fanny says, oh, do you know this captain, blah, 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 my my brother is under him. And Marion Crawford says, of various admirals, I could tell you a great deal of them and their flags and the gradation of their pay and their bickerings and jealousies. But in general, I can assure you that they are all passed over and all very ill-used. Certainly my home at my uncle's brought me acquainted with a circle of admirals. Of rears and vices I saw enough. Now do not be suspecting me of a pun, I entreat." That is a gay sex joke. And then it says in the next line, 
Edmund again felt great. <laughs> you cannot read this book any longer. It is a dirty book. <laughs> no. I know, and, and of course Edmund again felt great. He's a super moral guy. He's such a He's going to become a clergyman. It's a funny joke. He's such a prude. Yes, he's destined to become a clergyman. He, um, He's no fun, but, you know, in many, in many a case, a very brave personality is sort of attracted to a very light-hearted one. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> very serious, you know, personality. They need that in their life. They need that light and sparkle, and they they play off each other. And I think that's why they're part of why they're attracted to each other. But so, Mary Crawford. Um, one of the reasons why I love Mary Crawford, and you call it an alternate reality, is that Mary Crawford is Lizzie Bennet, but for the grace of whatever you believe in. Mary Crawford is clever. Mary Crawford is witty. She's like the party. She's a sparkling conversationalist. Everyone adores her. Everyone wants her around. But she's mean mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Um, I said that they're not malicious and they're flirting. And I think that's true. But she, I mean, she made a joke at her uncle's expense. She makes jokes at the expense of others that can be hurtful. And she is, Austin would say, lacks principles. She is not always, her behavior and her quips are not always appropriate. Which, if you want to have someone at your party, you like that because then you can go, ooh. Yeah, yeah exactly. Did she just make a gay sex joke? <laughs> <laughs> Which I could totally see Mariah, like Julia. Oh my god. Girl. Girl. No. Uh, but she is like a dark side. Lizzie Bennett in a lot of ways. Lizzie would never say anything like that. I think we can all agree that she would never be so unkind or so ungracious. Um, so I, that's one of the reasons I love Mary Crawford because I do love Lizzie Bennett so much. Mary Crawford is like if Lizzie went bad. Yeah, everybody loves her so much and has, has problems with the fact that she actually doesn't get her man at the end. She doesn't really find happiness, in this, but it's because of this sort of darkness. But I want to go back to something you said about how Henry and Mary are not the bad guys. Where people who adapt this book go wrong is they try to cast people who see look kind of evil, and they're evil from the very beginning. They come in and we think, I don't know if I like these people. That's the wrong way to go about it. Because these people, you have to love them. Because everybody at Mansfield loves them. And, and um, I think Austin's intent is for us to love them. In fact... Henry Crawford is named Henry. You know, people who are named Henry in her books are named after her oldest brother, mm -hmm. who was um, a fantastic conversationalist and just the most charming guy Austin ever knew. She ever knew. I think she says in one of her letters, uh, she meets a guy named Henry, and she writes to her sister like, "That guy was not a Henry." <laughs> you know, and 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 I think by naming her him that she is showing her affection for. And he also, I think it's interesting that he's described as not handsome many times explicitly. He was not handsome, and I think she's talking about that real phenomenon of people having such a force of personality that it doesn't even matter what they look like. You're just so attracted to them and want them around you. They're life of every party. So I'm going to disagree with you slightly, because in preparation for this, I did watch two of the, I think, more famous adaptions of Mansfield Park. The first stars Francis O'Connor. I don't remember the year. Do you remember the year it came out? It had to be in the 1990s, late 90s? Maybe 98, maybe. Okay. Um, it's very good. It definitely deviates a bit from the book, but, oh, you don't like it? I enjoyed it. However, 
the recent BBC remake, which starred Billy Piper from Doctor Who, is also problematic for several reasons. Ugh. However, Mary Crawford was played by Haley Atwell, who also plays Agent Carter. Mm. And I thought she was great. I adore her. She's extremely likable. I don't think they don't vilify the character of Mary Crawford as much as she was in the feature film. See, I don't remember that because after I watched them, it was 1999, the uh, feature film. Wow, so it wasn't too far off. You see, because Austin. How long had you been married at that point, Kristen? (laughs) Negative years. no, really, it feels it feels like you have been married. <laughs> I've been married since the late eighties. Kristen <laughs> actually came out of the womb, um, engaged to Kevin, her husband, who will be making a guest appearance, hopefully, yes, in our next episode. Really he apparently knows. has strong feelings about Fanny Price. <laughs> Probably mostly to do with the fact that her name is Fanny. So I'm hoping that we'll begin for a lot of Fanny puns. Yes, Fanny Price's name is very significant. Uh, we are going to, I don't know if we'll ever get to it, because we're having such a good time talking about the adaptations. Oh, right, sorry. Look, I, I don't remember the Mary Crawford of uh, the Davies uh, BBC adaptation. Well, I think that you should rewatch. Um, No, because the first time I watched it, I turned it off, metaphorically vomited everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and was, was horrified and scarred for life. I don't know what that was, Peggy, but that was not Mansfield Park. It wasn't that bad. No, it was not. It had nothing to do with the book. No, it did. What are you talking about? It had nothing to do with the book. You're totally exaggerating. They they took half the book and just threw it in the trash. Well, because honestly, half the book was kind of boring. Oh. (laughs) Okay, look. This is a perfect point to talk about the ha-ha's. So Mary Crawford, the whole party, Mariah, Julia, Fanny, Edmund, Mary, Henry Crawford, they all decide to go check out Southerton, Mr. Rushworth's estate. So there's all this jockeying among the couples, um, and they go on this big walk on the ground so they can talk about ways to improve it. Because apparently Henry Crawford, one of his many talents is landscaping. Because he has lots of strong opinions, strong feelings about what Mr. Rushworth should do to the state. But one of the things that's interesting is when they're going, when they're figuring out the transportation logistics, there's an interesting scene over who's going to get to sit next to Henry Crawford. Oh God, I love that scene. And it, it happens again later when they're trying to point out that you know that's how I steered her back to something that I knew that she really enjoyed. I think, Maggie, that um, <laughs> you may have found part of the book boring because you weren't connected to it because you didn't understand all the brilliant things I was going to say about oh. it. To make it go in a totally new light and to make you fascinated by it. Well then, Kristen, I simply cannot wait for you to enlighten me with your... <laughs> Your brilliance of Austin's symbolism and use of metaphor. This is my favorite book of all time, and I really feel really? that every single sentence in this book is valuable and necessary. I really feel like the, the loss of any sentence in this book would be a loss. So, Mansfield book. Park is straight up your favorite book of all time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I did not know that, and I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, I can't wait for you to explain to me the purpose and the reasoning behind the what feels like 100-page episode of wandering around the grounds. It felt like 100 pages as you were listening to it on audiobook. I am so against audiobooks for this reason. No. 
everything that's happening is so significant, so interesting, so fascinating. But Julia and Mariah vying for the seat on Henry Crawford's, what is it, barouche? I think it's a barouche. They're going... I just like saying the word barouche. They're going from Mansfield to Southerton to talk about landscaping. Their whole party is going for a day of pleasure. It's already riveting. A day of pleasure. Um, it is, though, because but at this time, Julia and Mariah are both very much obsessed, really, um, in, a, in a tremendous degree of, degree of lust with Henry Crawford. Both of them want to sit on the barouche box next to him while he drives. The rest of them have to sit in the carriage and right. not talk to him or hear him or see him. It's the favorite seat. And so they're both there. And it, it, they have, it says, um, let, me, let, me, let me actually bring it up and, and say what it actually says. Because um, both are wanting to sit there. Well, who wouldn't? I mean, watching him drive those powerful horses. Mm, mm, mm. The place of all places, the envied seat, the post of honour, was unappropriated. To whose happy lot was it to fall? While each of the Miss Bertrams were meditating how best, and with most appearance of obliging the others to secure it, the matter was settled by Mrs. Grant's saying, as she stepped from the carriage, "'As there are five of you, it will be better that one should sit with Henry. And as you were saying lately that you wished you could drive, Julia, I think this will be a good opportunity for you to take a lesson.' Happy Julia! Unhappy Maria! The former was on the barouche-box in a moment. The latter took her seat within, in gloom and mortification. So in these little social scenarios, it's just one little comment that decides it. Because you can't act like you want to sit next to him. That would be giving the game away. You can't call shotgun. <laughs> you really in can't. Regency England. It would be forward. It would be obvious. It would be you know, immodest to be like, oh, I really want to sit next to this guy. You can't betray your desire. You can only hope that circumstances. Somebody says, oh, I think you should do it because of you know this offhand reason. Um, and, and the next line is, happy Julia, unhappy Mariah, <laughs> because Mariah has to take her seat in the carriage in gloom and mortification. All these women want is to be distinguished by them. It's their one driver. It's their source of pleasure in the day. That's all they're looking forward to in the day. It's been, that's how into him they are. It's basically the entire definition of male gaze, right? Their entire person is defined by Hamden and Crawford, use them. Use them and, and uses them and, you, you know, like, yes. But they think he's, they don't, at this point, they think he's genuine and he, he can, his affection means something and that's what's so sad about it yeah. and so devastating later. And the same thing happens It feels again. like a Taylor Swift song. Is this just me or does this whole book feel like kind of a Taylor Swift song? Like Fanny Price is totally that girl sitting on the bleachers. She's, he, he's with the cheerleader and she's sitting on the bleachers. Right? Okay, Kristen is. Well, the popular guy is not is not at issue in the... Uh, That's true. Edmund's a total dream. Yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> like guy in Campus Crusade for Christ that they're like all... <laughs> <laughs> He's very religious. They're very so it's religious. Like a, it's like Mean Girls set at a Christmas, a Christmas <laughs> summer camp. <laughs> I think that Mansfield Park needs to be updated, kind of like 10 Things I Hate About You. With Emma? Yeah, sure. That would be good. Sure. All right, so so let's let's get back more to when they get to Southerton and they're walking around the grounds and what Austin is actually using this as an excuse to show. She's I shouldn't say excuse. What what is the 
explain to us what this um, portion of the book is explaining to us about society. About society, I'm not entirely sure I have anything intelligent to say, but with regard to them, Mariah and Henry Crawford, this is when things get really real. Okay. So because Henry Crawford did not ask Mariah to sit next to him in the box, high school drama kind of thing, um, Mariah is all downcast. However, when they escape from, um, they, 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 they go on a little pleasure walk around the ground, so they, they sort of escape from the, the chaperones, Mrs. Morris and whoever. Henry Crawford then does attend Mariah in Rushworth, and they go around talking about the estate. But then they get to a gate, and the gate is locked. After some minutes spent in this way, Miss Bertram, observing the iron gate, expressed a wish of passing through it into the park, that their views and their plans might be more comprehensive. It was the very thing of all others to be wished. It was the best, it was the only way of proceeding with any advantage, in Henry Crawford's opinion, and he directly saw a knoll not half a mile off, which would give them exactly the requisite command of the house. Go, therefore, they must to that knoll, and through that gate. But the gate was locked. Mr. Rushworth wished he had brought the key. He had been very near thinking whether he should not bring the key. He was determined that he should never come without the key again. But still this did not remove the present evil. They could not get through. And as Miss Bertram's inclination for so doing did by no means lessen, it ended in Mr. Rushworth's declaring outright that he would go and fetch the key. He set off accordingly. "'It is undoubtedly the best thing we can do now, as we are so far from the house already,' said Mr. Crawford, when he was gone. Yes, there is nothing else to be done. But now, sincerely, do not you find the place altogether worse than you expected? No, indeed. Far otherwise. I find it better, grander, more complete in its style, though that style may not be the best. And to tell you the truth, speaking rather lower, I do not think that I shall ever see Southerton again with so much pleasure as I do now. Another summer will hardly improve it to me." After a moment's embarrassment the lady replied, "'You are too much a man of the world not to see with the eyes of the world. If other people think Southerton improved, I have no doubt that you will. I am afraid I am not quite so much the man of the world as might be good for me in some points. My feelings are not quite so evanescent, nor my memory of the past under such easy dominion as one finds to be the case with men of the world." This was followed by a short silence. Miss Bertram began again. "'You seemed to enjoy your drive here very much this morning. I was glad to see you so well entertained. You and Julia were laughing the whole way." "'Were we?' "'Yes, I believe we were. But I have not the least recollection at what. Oh, I believe I was relating to her some ridiculous stories of an old Irish groom of my uncle's. Your sister loves to laugh." "'You think her more light-hearted than I am?' "'More easily amused,' he replied. Consequently, you know, smiling, better company. I could not have hoped to entertain you with Irish anecdotes during a ten-miles drive. Naturally, I believe, I am as lively as Julia, but I have more to think of now. You have undoubtedly. And there are situations in which very high spirits would denote insensibility. Your prospects, however, are too fair to justify want of spirits. You have a very smiling scene before you." "'Do you mean literally or figuratively?' "'Literally, I conclude. Yes, certainly the sun shines, and the park looks very cheerful. But unluckily that iron gate, that ha-ha, give me a feeling of restraint and hardship. I cannot get out, as the starling said. As she spoke, and it was with expression, she walked to the gate. He followed her. Mr. Rushworth is so long fetching this key. 
and for the world, you would not get out without the key and without Mr. Rushworth's authority and protection, or I think you might with little difficulty pass round the edge of the gate, here, with my assistance. I think it might be done, if you really wish to be more at large, and could allow yourself to think it not prohibited." "'Prohibited! Nonsense! I certainly can get out that way, and I will. Mr. Rushworth will be here in a moment, you know. We shall not be out of sight.' Or, if we are, Miss Price will be so good as to tell him that he will find us near that knoll, that grove of oak on the knoll." Fanny, feeling all this to be wrong, could not help making an effort to prevent it. "'You will hurt yourself, Miss Bertram,' she cried. "'You will certainly hurt yourself against those spikes. You will tear your gown. You will be in danger of slipping into the ha-ha. You had better not go.' Her cousin was safe on the other side, while these words were spoken, and smiling with all the good humour of success, she said, "'Thank you, my dear Fanny. But I and my gown are alive and well. And so, good-bye.' Fanny was again left to her solitude, and with no increase of pleasant feelings, for she was sorry for almost all that she had seen and heard, astonished at Miss Bertram, and angry with Mr. Crawford. By taking a circuitous, and as it appeared to her, very unreasonable direction to the knoll, they were soon beyond her eye, and for some minutes longer she remained without sight or sound of any companion. Of course, this is symbolic of sexual pleasure, because Mariah says, I've got to get through that gate. She sends Rushworth back to get the key, right? In the meantime, Henry Fetch the royal locksmith! (laughs) (laughs) Call yeah. That's a um, that's a Robin Hood men type joke. <laughs> there's always, there's always a good time. In case you all are not for men and type joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, Fanny is there. That's the thing. Fanny is always a quiet, mousy, third-party observer. Everybody forgets she's around. She's so beat down that she never offers a useful or interesting opinion of her own. She's sort of like a, a, a non-entity, and that's why the whole book is so fascinating because he. So many times you see things through her eyes, and you're seeing all this gay stuff going on, and she is very deeply affected by it. And um, anyway, Fanny is pretty judgmental. Well, yeah, she's Edmund's. Yeah, but which I can relate to. Yeah, well, she's pretty shocked. Well, to be fair, seeing your cousin who is engaged to another man dallying with with a guy, a Lothario. It's kind of shocking, and, and it is sort of, like, scandalous, and she is definitely scandalous. So, they're there, and um, Mariah, still smarting under the fact that Julia got picked for the box, said, oh, I saw, you know, she now is doing this dance with Henry Crawford and trying to figure out whether he loves her, or she wants his love. It's like, oh, I guess you were having a pretty good time with Julia. And he's like, oh, we were just laughing about some dumb thing. You know, you don't ha- you're not as um, light-hearted as she. You have more to think of now. You're married, you're an engaged woman. And she's like, um, and she says, well, I don't know about that. He, then he says, you have a very smiling scene before you. Talking about the estate. And she says, do you mean literally or figuratively? Literally, I conclude. Because figuratively, the scene, which would be her married life, her future life, is not smiling. They can both acknowledge between them that this is a dumb guy you're going to be married to. And he starts to insinuate, another summer will hardly improve Southerton to me, you know, because she's going to be married. And he really starts laying it on thick. I'll be so sad when you marry him, and you won't be free to be with me anymore. 
She says, yes, certainly the sun shines and the park looks very cheerful. But unluckily, that iron gate, that ha-ha, which is, as we've discussed, a ditch in the ground. This is at the point in listening to the book. Well, I have read the book, to be fair. Uh, but when I was re-listening to it, I emailed her and I said, what the hell is a ha-ha? Why do people keep going on and on and on about the ha-ha? So Kristen wrote it's me back very politely. It's a reverse fence. It's a fence that's spoiled of use and they just dig a big ditch and you can't get across. No animals can get across. That's the ha-ha. She's like, luckily, you know, unluckily this iron gate, this, this, um, that, this ha-ha, gives me a feeling of restraint and hardship. I cannot get out, as the starling said. That's a quote from the Pope or whatever. I forget what's on this Pope. Anyway, and he says, well, I think you can. You can step around the gate if you just take a little care. We'll go, we'll go through this gap here. And he goes through, and Fanny, at this point, she's seeing them leave without Mr. Rushworth. She's seeing Henry Crawford be very romantic and flirty with her. And she, she, so she says, um... Fanny, feeling all this to be wrong, could not help making an effort to prevent it. You will hurt yourself, Miss Bertram, she cried. You will certainly hurt yourself against those spikes. You will tear your gown. You will be in danger of slipping into the ha-ha. You had better not go. All of this is is veiled metaphor for sex. You will tear your gown. You will slip into the... Ha ha, right? The empty <laughs> channel. Uh, for our gentle listeners, Kristen is now gesturing <laughs> very suggestively <laughs> to what the ha ha might be. You'll hurt yourself on those spikes. And um, they do. They slip their they slip through the gate and they go to the grassy knoll. Wink wink. <laughs> I charge you, Fanny, to say we will be at the grassy knoll. I bet you will. You dirty dog. Whoa. <laughs> well, now I feel that I have just completely unfairly maligned this section of the book that I took to be about landscaping <laughs> when it was all about sex. And I feel like I missed out. <laughs> yeah, it's all the very best part. And then Mary Crawford comes along and starts talking about the ha-ha, and then things get crazy. And they all just, like, rip off their bodices and run, <laughs> roll around. And it turns into, like, Midsummer Night's Dream, and I don't know what. That doesn't happen. Yeah, 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 but see, but that's what's going on, and it's it's um, it, it's there, but you have to... Just like in Northanger Abbey, she uh, she spends that night, and a storm is outside, and talks about the rattling of the wind, and all that is veiled sex as well. Um, or, you know, masturbation, as the case may be, but... <laughs> That's for another podcast. That's Kristen. for another podcast. That's for the <laughs> masturbation theme. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, Bay is gesturing <laughs> at the haha region. <laughs> but another thing that's going on here is Fanny is also tortured because she sees Edmund and Mary Crawford flirting, who are also walking about. They're walking about. Southerton is a den of sexual inequity. What is happening? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I really need to reread this book. Well, Fanny is also tired, and so they're walking around, and she really wants to be with them to be a third party in their way, but she gets really tired, so she has to sit Yeah, let's talk about this about Fanny, first of all. One of the reasons why Fanny, I think, is also viewed as kind of lame is because this girl gets tired, like, tired. walking down the street. She is soon knocked up. She gets up. exhausted. <laughs> Which is, as you know. Yes. Knocked up, having a different connotation here. Um, but she gets tired, like, walking to the end of the lane, 
And so Edmund gets her a pony that she can ride to build up her endurance. And the poor thing walking, she has to sit down on a bench by herself because she's so exhausted. And it's just kind of like, Fanny, get it together. <laughs> you gotta get your 10,000 steps, girl. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so we're going to get to Mary Crawford. And there's a, a, a charming scene here with Mary Crawford where she, you must have been bored during this too, I imagine which she and Edmund are flirting. And she has just found out that Edmund is going to be a clergyman. She yes, this was not before. boring. This was fascinating. Um, and this, all this, so she's with this guy. She thinks she really likes him. Um, well, let's hang on a second, because we talked about a, a little while ago how Mary Crawford knew that she would be attracted to Tom, the firstborn, the heir. But then when she meets them, she's not really. She just doesn't dig it. He's At first not, she does. At first she does. She's like, she takes interest in the horse he's going to run at the races. When he goes away, that's when she starts listening to Edmund. He's a quiet guy. But Rushworth is there talking like an idiot about his uh, improvements at that dinner I was talking about. So again. basically your choices are listening to Rushworth or listening to Edmund. Edmund's stock goes way no, up. No, because he <laughs> says... Mr. Rushworth is quite right, I think, in meaning to give it a modern dress. And I have no doubt that it will be all done extremely well. Miss Crawford listened with submission, and said to herself, "'He is a well-bred man. He makes the best of it.'" And she thinks, you know, this idiot, and he was just polite. He's a well-bred man. He makes the best of it. And that's the beginning of her watching his behavior and realizing he's polite, and he, he knows how to take things with grace, and there's just a lot of hidden, quiet value in him. And she starts to value him. She does have moral taste. I really, and this is one of the reasons why I do like Mary Crawford and why I feel like she is very much unfairly painted as a villain. Uh, because I can relate to her in a lot of ways, much how I related to Lizzie, where I am outgoing. But I also, it doesn't mean just because you are fun and sometimes overstep the line, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. And so she does see the qualities of Edmund that make him a good person. We have talked about Edmund as kind of molding Fanny into the perfect woman, which I think also cast him in a negative light. But Edmund is a good guy. For the times. Yeah. I mean, he's working within the, the, the context. Exactly. Of the it's, all, it's all about the context, right? But Edmund is a, is a great guy. He's going to make him a clergyman. He's not a foolish clergyman like Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice. He's a nice guy. He's very forgiving of other people's faults. He tries to see the good in people. And I think Mary Crawford is a good example of that, too. Um, and so he does have things to recommend him. And I feel like Mary's attraction to him feels very organic and very real where oh i you know when she's joking she says i know that i will be attracted to the firstborn because i know myself but then when she actually meets edmund and sees how kind and nice and i'm sure he's good looking uh she does start to feel for him and when she finds out that he intends to take orders and become a clergyman she does not take it well no she doesn't and it's just like Mariah um, meeting a man she really likes for the first time in Henry Crawford. I think it may be the first time that, uh, in Henry Crawford, excuse me, I think it may be the first time that Mary has ever really met a man who has value and virtue. Yeah, she and Henry are kind of, Mary Crawford and her brother Henry are kind of professional flirts, right? Yes. So she's never actually met someone she really that she really liked, that she's considering transcending, taking this man. He's a clergyman. And, but this, this starts off an argument they have throughout the book where he loves her and she says, no, 
you're not rich enough. You need to find some money. You're Which she says full on. She says completely honestly as a joke. But also this goes under the like kidding, not kidding. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, you're far, you're so not rich enough for me, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, the the subtext is she's telling the truth. Mm Mm-hmm. She says, you know, she's like, so you're to be a clergyman. And he says, yeah, I thought you would have. That's obvious. You know, it's clear I have no profession. I dress in black all the time, lady. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I'm not in the army or the navy, so you've got to know. I'm a second son. Yeah, I'm a second son. I'm not going to inherit this estate. I'm going to, you know, I'm growing up in this incredible opulence, but I'm not going to have any of it, which has got to be hard, but he's handling it really well. But there's a living held for him. So he's got employment waiting for him. And she's like, well, in short, it had not occurred to me. You know, there's always an uncle or a grandfather to leave a fortune to the second son. And he's like, well, in this case, there's not. And she's like, well, go into the law. And he's like, go into the law with as much ease as I am told to go into this wilderness. You really are fit for something better. Come, do change your mind. It is not too late. Go into the law. Go into the law with as much ease as I was told to go into this wilderness. Now you are going to say something about law being the worst wilderness of the two, but I forestalled you. Remember, I have forestalled you. And uh, she said, now you are going to say something about the law being the worst wilderness of the two, but I have forestalled you. Remember, I have forestalled you. Which means... I want to mention that she's doing this all by heart, and it's like I'm watching a play. It's amazing. Yeah. There's hand gestures. It's great. <laughs> oh, God. There's so many parts of this book I will never forget. And, um, you know, I, I think we should do a part two and perhaps even part three because we have to talk about the play. As you remember from May yes, the theatrical. Oh, my God. And there are some clips in there that just make me ache for Fanny. I mean, we, we didn't get to talk a lot about her and her the clips that make her, um, I think the clips, the parts that make her sympathetic. Well, this will be good, I think, for Kevin also, yes. where he can join us. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine the most painfully shy person you know, and they're putting a play on in their house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's an immoral play that they shouldn't be doing. And it's called Lover's Vow. Lover's I mean, this vows. does not sound like something Fanny would enjoy. Yeah. Um, so maybe this is a good stopping point. And now that I know that this is your favorite of all the novels, I definitely think that we'll have maybe a part three because I want to give it the proper attention it deserves. And so I should point out that the first time I read Mansfield Park, I hadn't read it in until I was an adult because um, I had always heard that it was not her best. Fanny was annoying and Kristen had encouraged me to read it and I read it and I marked pages and we had this whole kind of, private book club about it during a party, which I think some people found kind of awkward. <laughs> Whatever. Taylor's going to hate. Uh, <laughs> um, but after reading it and then talking to Kristen, my appreciation of it was so broadened. And even revisiting it again tonight, that that part we're talking about with you know them tramping through Southerton Estate, my appreciation of it has grown. Um, and there's so much more good stuff we need to talk about. We need to talk about the theatricals. We need to talk about um, the subtext of slavery mm-hmm. in the book, uh, not just from the plantation, but also women. I will. Also, I will say right now, slaves that, of English uh, society. I will say right now that it is no accident that her name is Fanny Price. Ooh. <laughs> Continue. 
I'm not so much all I had. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening to Fooler's. Thank you very much. Um, Kristen's mom. Best, yeah, thanks, Kristen's mom. I know you're the only person listening. <laughs> well, my mom will listen to it. Aw, your mom's so sweet. Maybe <laughs> Bay's mom will listen to it. Well, Bay's mom <laughs> is actually a former English teacher. Oh. So I kind of don't want her to listen to oh, it no. because then she won't like me anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Well, Although we did manage not to drop an F bomb this time. Yeah, I'm in so, a pretty good mood. I'm pretty proud of it. How much wine have you had? So just in case you're curious, tonight we were drinking the <laughs> Menage a Trois California Red Wine 2011 vintage, which I thought was quite delightful. Excellent vintage. It was a blend based on Zinfandel Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon, and I would definitely recommend it. I believe you can pick it up at your neighborhood Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> bargain wine. It was quite good. Um, so I'll make it a point at the end of every podcast now to so announce what wine we're drinking. I think that's nice.